Welcome back to Practice Purchased, podcast all about buying a dental practice. I've got Morgan Stump. We're talking uh, bank loans again, and this is episode five of season four. Morgan, hello. Hi, Brian. This episode, as you and I were talking about the outline for this season and, and recording five episodes, we got to uh, an interesting point where there's a lot of, I'll, I'll just call them different situations that come up from time to time that are frequent enough to talk about, but not so common that they each deserve their own 20-minute episode. So this is more of a grab bag. However, I think it would be a mistake to skip this episode because I think, you know, between all of the different topics we're going to talk about, I think it's fairly likely that most borrowers are going to run into at least something that we talk about in this episode. Uh, so just to kind of give you a, a sneak preview of what's coming up, we're going to talk about what what happens with the real estate, how the real estate's different than the practice loan. We're going to talk about seller carries and holdbacks. A common thing that comes up is whether or not buyers can actually close on a home, get a home mortgage and close on a practice at the same time, and then a few other things that come up. So uh, Morgan, we're excited to have you here. Thanks again for, for uh, being willing to share your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Okay, so a lot of the discussion to this point, episodes one through four, has uh, the underlying assumption is that you're buying the business, and the business is the dental practice. It's the it's the goodwill. It's the patient habits. It's the staff knowledge. It's all those things. And 100% financing is the standard right now on most deals. Um, that is not always true, and there's different reasons why that may not be true on a deal you're looking at. But for most dentists, they're going to get 100% financing on the business. Then the seller says, "Hey, by the way." I'd also like to sell the building. Or I would say actually more commonly, the, the seller says, I own the building. I don't want to sell it today, but I want to sell it to you in two years or three years or 12 months or something like that. So the building purchase is on the table in some form or fashion. First, just a basic primer. Morgan, what's different about buying a building versus buying the practice? Yeah, great question. So as you mentioned, you know, when you're buying the practice, you're buying the business, um, but it is what we consider to be an under collateralized loan. You're really paying for the goodwill, you know, and goodwill is constituted as the patients, obviously, but also the staff, the reputation of the practice. And at the end of the day, um, banks are willing to lend on it strictly off of the wonderful track record that dentists pay their bills. Um, <laughs> under collateralized, meaning... Under collateral is meaning the dentist is getting a million dollars to buy a practice with nothing but a diploma on the wall, right? There's yes. meaning there, there, if the business fails, the dentist dies, something happens, the bank just lent the money and uh, now they have to go chase it down somehow. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at, that's why banks don't really get too into, you know, what equipment is in there because that just doesn't factor into the overall decision. It all comes down to cash flow. Um, so God forbid, you know, you were to default on that loan for the practice, then, you know, the, the bank would be stuck either trying to salvage, you know, fire sale the equipment, but more likely try to sell the practice for, you know, pennies on the dollar. Yep. So the difference between that situation and the building is the building is actual collateral. There's going to be a third party appraisal done uh, that's going to come up with a value. And then that building is going to be held in a separate LLC holding company. And so this is really important. In my opinion, it should be a doctor's goal to own their commercial real estate within five years of ownership, because that's really how you start building wealth. Um, you set up the building in an LLC holding company. You've got your operating entity, which is usually an S corp or an LLC. Now you're paying yourself rent. Oftentimes you're paying inflated rent, uh, not too inflated. You don't want to raise any red flags with the IRS, but point being that payment that you're making to yourself becomes a tax write-off. 
So now, you know, five, 10% more of your revenue is making it to the bottom line because your lease is one of your biggest expenses outside of, you know, payroll. So owning your commercial real estate is important. Um, and the big difference really as well is it's hard to get, if you're coming out of the gate and buying a practice, it is really hard to get hundred percent financing for commercial real estate. Um, so you're typically looking at SBA options possibly that we would only require 10% down versus conventional options that would likely be 15 to 20% down. Let so, me pause you there. Let me pause. So mm-hmm. I've heard two differences so far. Difference number one is collateral. What's backing the loan. And with real estate, there's actual physical, tangible building that I can walk up and kick. I don't know why I'm kicking a building, but I am. Okay. Um, (laughs) So that's difference number one. Difference number two that you mentioned is that there's a down payment involved. Okay. Got it. And and, uh, timing on the down payment. Either way, no matter what, if I'm buying a building, um, almost certain that I'm going to pay a down payment. 10, 20%. In most cases, 20%. Correct. However, yeah. keep in mind that most lenders do allow the seller to carry that 10 to 20%. Ah, okay. We're going to talk about seller carries here in a minute, but the bank is only paying the seller uh, a percentage of the purchase price. Not the not 100%, but it's like 80%, maybe 90% in some cases. Okay. Got it. Exactly. Okay. All right. Perfect. What about... Um, the uh, the term on the loans, right? Real estate uh, loans tend to have a little different term. So most practice loans are 10, a few or 15 years. What are real estate loans? Yeah, real estate loans are anywhere from 15 years out to 25 years typically. Okay. Um, so, you know, SBA usually has some options where you might be able to get a 20 or a 25 year fixed interest rate. You're probably going to pay a higher interest rate and it's the SBA. So you'll pay the SBA fees and all that goes with it. But rates are really low right now, so that might be very attractive to you. Um, the amortization is really important uh, when it comes to these, these building loans. The amortization is basically what your payment is built off of. So if you have what's called, a, let's call it a 25-year amortization, then that means that your monthly payment is calculated on a 25-year term. Now, it is unusual to have a 25-year fixed interest rate. So for example, us, we have a conventional loan product. It's non-SBA. Um, And not trying to talk about products here, but I want to give an example. Uh, Our loans on conventional real estate right now are 25-year amortizations where the rate is fixed for 10 years. So that allows us to basically keep it in the 10-year money, uh, you know, interest rate realm. So you're looking at high twos, low threes right now, but you either need to plan to pay that loan off before the end of 10 years, or you're going to have to refinance when the 10-year anniversary comes up because there would be a balloon note after 10 years. Okay, hold on. Quick, yep. quick terminology thing. Here. So, yeah. No, 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 you're good. You're good. I just want to make sure, um, not because you and I live in this world, um, a couple terms I want to just make sure, SBA, Small Business Administration, and the difference there would be if I'm going to you at Provide, Morgan, um, you guys are lending your own funds. The, you're pulling money from you know a source that you own. If it's an SBA loan or a Small Business Administration loan, the government is putting up part of the money for that loan. So there's some additional rules and regulations behind that. Correct. Um, We're actually insuring usually about half ah, of the loans. Interesting. So the funds, okay, good. The funds are coming from the bank, but then if there's a default situation, the government will support, will, will basically reimburse the bank for half of it. Got it. And then the other term that came up, uh, amortization, that is the length of the loan, right? 10 year, 15, 25. Okay. And then 
you were talking about how the interest rate can reset. Let's talk a little bit. I just want to repeat that to make sure. And you tell me if I've got this right. I think I do. <laughs> I hope I do. Um, but um, so what you're saying is, all right, I'm going to buy a building. It has a 25-year ter- amortization schedule. or a tw- I'm going to pay that loan over 25 years. But uh, you guys that provide the, the, the rates right now are somewhere in the threes. You know, you're, what you're saying is, gosh, Brian, I don't know that we want to lock in our interest rate for 15, 20, 25 years at 3%. Who knows what the world's going to look like 25 years from now? The interest rates, the prevailing interest rates could be 8, 10, 12% like they were in the early 1980s. So we're going to hedge our bets a little bit. We're going to, we're going to, you know, not take on quite as much risk. And at the end of 10 years, we're going to re-underwrite the interest rate on this loan. Is, do I have that right? Correct. It, it technically, the loan becomes due after 10 years. Ah, okay. So it kind of- due refinancing. It, yeah. It basically forces your hand to either refinance it or try to pay it off in the 10 years. Got it. My, so- my, my advice in these situations is, you know, if, if you actually calculate- what your payment would be to have it paid off in 10 years, it's oftentimes lower than what your lease would be for that same space. Right. So I always advise my doctors, make that minimum payment for a couple of years and then ramp it up and, and set the goal of paying off that building in 10 years. Because after 10 years, you could be 33 or 43, 44 years old and have both your practice and your building free and clear. Yeah. I mean, that's Good. the position you want to get to as quickly as possible. Good financial planning advice. I give you uh, 10 CFP points are hereby awarded. Um, <laughs> So uh, if a dentist wants to sound really smart with Morgan on the phone, I can say, hey, Morgan, what are, what's the term on your CRE loan? CRE is commercial real estate. And then, then I can sound really fancy and I can say, are you guys doing a 25 due in 10 or a 15 due in 15? You know, and and uh, the, the first number is the total term. And the second number is how fast that balloon payment is due. Bingo. Okay. I love it. Okay. I just, you know, little, now you'll know if somebody listened to the podcast because they sound really smart. (laughs) Last thing on the real estate is who decides how much the real estate is worth, right? So the, the dentist says, you know, my, uh, the oral surgeon next to me, he sold his building for 600. My, my building's pretty similar to his. I want 600 for my building. Tell me about some of the pitfalls here in terms of how the, the price for the building gets calculated. Yeah. So, um, in that example that you just gave, I mean, if they are truly like buildings and like businesses, then it's probably going to land pretty close to what your your neighbor at six hundred thousand dollars landed at. Um, but every single bank has an approved list of appraisers that they that they have to work with. Um, so it's truly a third party, and it's truly impartial. It's not the bank's appraiser. Oftentimes, sellers you know push back a little bit and say, "Well, I don't want to use the you know the the, the bank's appraiser because obviously it's in their best interest to have me have it a low value." No, the bank cannot legally influence the value of an appraisal. So, as soon as you commit to a lender, the lender usually takes a deposit up front, uh, what we call uh, a commitment deposit or an escrow deposit, uh, because all of these third party appraisals and the various reports that have to be ordered when you're buying the building cost money. And in most cases, you, the borrower, are going to be responsible for it. So you typically are going to have three main reports. You've got your third-party appraisal, and that's how you find the value. Uh, and then you're going to have the phase one and the alter report. We don't have to get into those, but I'm just trying to prep you know, your listeners to know that there is some due diligence that goes on to ensure that the building that you're buying 
is, is, is an accurate value, but then it's also in good shape. Uh, the property lines are where they should be. We're just trying to avoid any pitfalls of you getting in there afterwards and, and then finding out something that you didn't know about. Here's why this is important. All right. So if you're a dentist listening to this and you may buy the building, there's a timing issue here. All right. The seller wants you to commit to a price. All right. I want 600 for my building. In order to get an LOI signed, you got to tell the seller whether or not you, you're going to buy the building, whether or not you intend to buy the building. But, and here's the key issue, in order to, com- to commit and, and sign an LOI, I've got to, you know, essentially agree to either a process or a price for that building. So maybe I'm going to explain this a little bit by asking a question, Morgan, you'll see where I'm going with this. What if I commit to pay 600 for the building? Provide hires the real estate appraiser who then comes back and says, yeah, it's this building's worth 550. Now what? Yeah. So this, I mean, this happens all the time. It's not unusual for sellers to overvalue their, their own building. It's kind of, <laughs> we've seen it a lot, right? Um, and so they think, oh, no way, it's worth this. And then you get the appraisal and it's it comes in low. So you know, when the appraisal comes in low, all bets are off. I mean, you, you, you it's a negotiation at that point. Um, the best case scenario would be to agree to a purchase price, but then get the seller to basically agree to uh, whatever the appraisal comes back at. So in this yeah. situation, yes, I'll pay six hundred thousand if the if it appraises for six hundred thousand. But if the impartial third party comes back and says it's five fifty, then we're going to utilize five fifty, because the bank is only going to lend eighty or ninety percent of what the appraised value is, not what you guys agree upon. So in this scenario, if you've got a, a seller that is just you know holding tight to that six hundred thousand dollar number, and then the appraisal comes in at five fifty, we're only going to lend to the five fifty. So if the seller digs their digs their feet in the ground and says, "Nope, I'm not coming off the six six hundred thousand," you've got one of two options. One is that the buyer would have to come to the table with the fifty thousand dollars to make up the difference, or the seller could carry the note uh, and a seller carryback note, which I know we're going to talk about shortly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a big deal. It, you got to have a down payment for the real estate. In my example of 600, it'd be in most cases going to be 20% or $120,000. A lot of dentists who are well-prepared are saying, okay, Brian, I've got 120. And by the way, I've got the 120 plus I've got extra cash to show Morgan that I can survive another COVID year if that happens. Okay, great. High five doc. You got the 120. Then the appraisal comes back and it's 550. And, and Morgan says, gosh, yeah, sorry, we're going to pay 80, per, we're going to give the seller 80% of 550. And so now not the dentist has to come up with 190, right? Because the banks are giving, um, let's see, 110 down. It, plus I got to make up the gap between what I told the seller I was going to pay. So here's how I do it. Morgan, you tell me if this is a, a good approach. In the LOI, we phrase it as, Buyer intends to purchase the building at an anticipated price of 600 pending buyer bank appraisal. Bingo. Yeah. So it, what that does is it puts the seller on notice saying, hey, listen, if your building is worth 600 I will happily pay you 600 But the bank's appraiser is the one that's going to determine the final value. That is correct. And, you know, if if... I have this exact situation going on right now and a seller yeah. that's kind of digging in and 
I'm advising the buyer on how to kind of play this. The buyer and seller have a wonderful relationship. And, you know, part of what you're paying for when you buy a practice is the goodwill, even during the transition. So you want to you want to keep the seller happy. You don't want to burn that right. bridge. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to overpay for an asset. So in this situation, uh, we forwarded the appraisal over to the seller and the seller's wife, who was kind of spearheading things. And the seller's wife wrote literally a thousand words about why they think the appraisal is low, um, why they think that, uh, you know, it should be worth more um, and cited things such as, you know, Google's putting buildings here and Facebook's moving in all things that might help impact the, uh, the price down the road, right. but nothing that's going to help the value today. So what we did is we took her notes and because the buyer wanted to maintain good, good, you know, goodwill with the, with the seller, uh, we actually forwarded that over to the appraiser and just said, hey, you know, the buyer wanted us to forward this to you just in good faith, working with the seller. Um, and then I made sure to put in that email. I said, listen, you know, looking, I'm not an appraiser, but looking at her notes, a lot of this is projected. Um, I know that an appraisal is a snapshot in time. So please just give us your comments. Give me something to forward back over to the seller and the broker so that they know that we actually did send it back to the appraiser. Because appraisers, they're human beings. They do miss sure. things. So if they miss, you know, a specific comp or maybe there's a building down the street that they missed that sold, appraisers can bump up the value if they're given data that they did not have on their own. So if it's going to be a deal breaker and, you know, it's just not worth losing that deal because of fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000, then ask the seller to provide, you know, provide the, the appraiser to the seller and ask the seller to provide the best data so that you can go back to the appraiser. Morgan, in 30 seconds or less, we're getting close on time. What is a seller carry? Yes, a seller carry back is basically uh, the seller being the bank for a portion of the loan. Uh, a seller carry back is usually put in place and requested by the bank due to a buyer deficiency or a seller deficiency. So maybe the buyer doesn't have as much liquidity as, as the bank would want. In that situation, giving having the seller carry a little bit of debt um, lowers the bank's liability with how much money they're sending out, but it also gives the seller some skin in the game. So, you know, God forbid something were to kind of go wrong or this, they're struggling with the transition. The seller's now on the hook. They know if they're going to get their seller carryback note paid back, they need to step in and help as much as possible. Yeah. And what's the difference between a seller carryback and a seller holdback? A seller carryback is actually a, a, a note that you put in place. So there's going to be a loan, loan terms. There's going to be an interest rate and a monthly payment. A holdback is a, an agreed amount that you hold back from paying them, um, usually not due to the bank requesting that, but usually due to somebody like you or a CPA, uh, recognizing that the transition may be a little bit challenging, that the price point may be a little bit high. And that you guys negotiate up front during the negotiations that I'm going to pay X amount of dollars today. And then if the practice uh, performs at a certain level, then we're going to pay the rest in 12 months, 24 months, whatever's negotiated. Darn right. Sellers that think, yeah, my practice is worth X. And I'm saying, no, it's worth Y. And the seller says, no, it's X. And the buyer says, well, can I just pay X? And I'm saying, nope. <laughs> yeah. You can you can pay X if it's successful. And and uh, anyway, okay, that makes exactly sense. It. And every situation is different, right? right? So that is a good option if the seller is willing to do it. it. I see those fewer and fewer these days. It seems like though. Last question: Can a buyer who is um, closing on a practice, maybe there's a building involved, maybe there's not, can they get a building or excuse me, a practice loan and a mortgage? 
at the same time? And if yes or no, you know, what, what are the, what, how can the doc be successful here? So this is a great question. I'll try to make it quick. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) This is something that um, has been a hindrance for, for years. I mean, usually you've got, you know, you're, maybe you're moving into a new town or you're just, you know, a couple years out of dental school, you're starting a family, you want to buy a house. Traditionally uh, you've had to decide to either buy a house and close right before you close on the practice with your W-2 income. Uh, Or if you buy the practice first, you'll have to wait for two years because mortgage banks, they don't, they're not real sophisticated in underwriting. They don't, this isn't the sandbox that they play in. So they want to see your name on tax returns for the business for two years before they feel comfortable uh, lending to you for a home. Um, I will tell you that I have found a wonderful resource that is, that is being very aggressive, offering great rates and terms uh, to new doctor owners as well. So if anybody needs that resource, reach out to Brian and myself, and we'll be happy to provide it for you. Um, but, you know, we make a lot of assumptions when we underwrite a practice loan. Uh, we're basically plugging you in there and giving you credit for what the previous owner did while he was he or she was owning it. Um, the banks aren't the, the mortgage banks aren't comfortable with that just because they don't have the data and the experience and they don't really understand, you know, how how well these loans perform. So they're going to take a more conservative approach. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's like the old Jerry Seinfeld joke about, um, you know, why why are the grooms, uh, groom and groomsmen all dressed the same? Well, if the groom doesn't show up, you just slide one to the left because, the men, you know, they're all pretty much the same. Um, you know, so it's kind of the same. Yeah, that one dentist is the same as the other dentist. But um, anyway, so, OK, short version on the mortgage and the practice loan is difficult to do, not impossible, very important to know the right person. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Morgan, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being a a guest on the podcast. Again, folks, um, very approachable. Morgan is is knowledgeable, probably the top banker in the country. Uh, I highly recommend you reach out to him. He's a great resource. And uh, Morgan, can't thank you enough. No, my pleasure, Brian. Thank you as always.